Taking the Middle Seat, a podcast where we explore connection where you might not think it exists. I'm your host, Andrea, and I have always believed there is connection to be made when you sit next to someone and really take in their story. So every couple of weeks or so, I'm taking the middle seat. I'm listening in on someone's story because I know that the middle seat holds healing and acceptance and laughter and community if we just stay open and remember that we belong to each other. I hope you'll listen into each and every episode and that you'll find yourself moving in to hear the magic in the middle seat. On this episode, I'm interviewing Jennifer Stewart. She is a professor of sociology at Grand Valley State University, and today we talk about a student group that she has led for a number of years called Act on Racism. It developed organically out of the lived experiences that her students were telling her about, and you'll hear about the impact that this group has created over the years. Act on Racism has evolved over the years, so you'll hear Jennifer talk about its origin, how it impacted the participants and the observers, and how it has created a really dynamic and interesting community for students of color at Grand Valley. It is so cool and unique, you guys. I think I say I love it like a thousand times in this episode because I truly do love it. We also talk about a few very unique favorite things that Jennifer is loving right now. It is truly a special interview that includes teaching and vulnerability and laughs. I love it. See, I said it again. As always, I'll have the links to anything we talk about in the show notes. You can find those in the episode on iTunes if you go into the episode and scroll down a little bit. All of the links are right there or on my website as usual. And usually at this point, I encourage listeners to share the show with a friend or rate the show on your favorite podcast player. And those are all great things to do. But today, you guys, I have a special assignment. I want to encourage you to tell the people in your circle that you love them. Tell them why. Be specific. Tell them that nothing is too much to walk through together. I was reminded this week that people can be gone in an instant. So I'm telling my people that I love them and I want you to also. Take that middle seat next to each one of your people and just love them so, so well. I want to dedicate this show to my friend who went way too soon. She was a voice and a light for racial justice and encouraged me so well in my little podcast adventure. I know she would love this one. So here you go, Ellen, my interview with Jennifer Stewart. So today on the podcast, I am excited to have Jennifer Stewart. Welcome. Thank Thank you for doing this. Um, So... I have known of you for many years because you work with my husband at Grand Valley State um, and you guys are colleagues, but I was really interested to talk to you about a specific thing that you do that I think is rad and I want to know more about called Act on Racism. But before we get to that, tell listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, little intro. Um, yeah, I'm an associate professor of sociology and... Uh... I teach the odd combination of race and sociology of food, so um, it's kind of a strange mm-hmm. little combo, but I like it. Um, I'm a Michigander. I was born in Saginaw, so you know you always got to get that in. Yeah, born and raised. I did not realize. Yes, not raised in Saginaw. Born in Saginaw, but raised in the Lansing area. Okay. So I'm a um, fellow lifer. Yeah. Yes. It, kind of the mitten. Mm-hmm. Pulls you in it every does. time. It does. <laughs> I know. I was not trying to stay necessarily, and here I am. Well, I, I went to graduate school in South Carolina, so um, Charleston is one of my favorite cities, but mm-hmm. it's just too hot. It is. It's too cold here, but it's too yeah. hot there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you got sucked back in. I did. Did you come right to Grand Valley from... Yes. Getting your PhD? Okay. Uh, well, I worked at the College of Charleston um, while I was getting my PhD, and then I worked there for a year after I, I got the PhD. So, okay. um, you know, kind of my my husband's father, my father-in-law, was, was sick and dying, and we wanted to come home. And mm-hmm. just by chance that year, I think there were four or five different 
jobs in Michigan, and so that was really the only, those were the only jobs I applied to that year, mm -hmm. and uh, wound up at Grand Valley, which, funnily enough, I had never heard of. Right? <laughs> I mean, it is kind of a weird, people are not from here, it's like out in the middle of nowhere, but it's a big university, at least it is now. I mean, yeah. It's grown a ton, but yeah, it's a little bit of a unicorn. Yeah, my first, um, my first vision of Grand Valley was uh, when I got the job and was driving from Grand Haven, where I live, was uh, going past a set of, we're not supposed to call them dorms anymore, they're living centers. Right, sure, yes. Um, but there were cows grazing right outside, <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> Here I am. Uh -huh. This is where I'm teaching. Yes. Yay. Um, so you have been at Grand Valley for how long? Ooh, since 2001. I, that's super close to when George started. Yeah, yeah so I a think long George time. started two or three years before I did, I want to say. Yeah. yeah. Craziness. Yeah. It feels, it doesn't feel that long, but. Yeah. It is that it long. It is that <laughs> So I'm curious to know, before we get into Act on Racism, what made you specialize in race? Um. I think there were a number of, of different things. Um, I went to kindergarten in Lansing, and uh, I still have a photograph of my kindergarten class. Mm -hmm. You know when they used to do, mm -hmm. like, you get the picture of everyone in class, all the headshots. Yeah. Um, and I looked at it recently, and I think it must have had a profound impact on me in some way mm -hmm. that I couldn't articulate at five, mm -hmm. but it was a really integrated school. Mm -hmm. And then I went to, um, by the fourth grade, I was in the Okemos school system. Mm -hmm. And that was the whitest school system, mm -hmm. obviously, <laughs> in my limited experience that I, I had seen. Um, and so I remember thinking that that part of Okemos was very strange. Mm -hmm. So I had enough time maybe in an integrated school to recognize that as that for me was normal and Okemos was not. Yeah. Um, and then I think a lot of it was about um, reading authors of color mm -hmm. throughout my high school and college career. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was just a subject that really intrigued me and then... Um, when I was in college, I think I was a freshman, my mom sent me the autobiography of Malcolm X. Okay. And that was the first time I realized that Malcolm X had grown up in Michigan mm -hmm. and gone to school um, very close to where I went to school and had um, worked in a restaurant where we used to go in, at Michigan State mm -hmm. for a brunch called Coral Gables. Okay. And... My question to her was, how come I don't know this? Yeah. And she said, that's an excellent question. And so it was just kind of little moments like that mm -hmm. that made me realize there's something going on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something I want to know more about. Something super interesting. Yeah. Very cool. So Act on Racism, to my knowledge, started in 2005. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Um, and talk about what, what started it. What made you form this cool thing? Well, I had, I think since I started teaching race at Grand Valley, although I'm not entirely sure about this at this point in time, mm -hmm. I think the last homework assignment, for a long time anyway, has been called an act of resistance against everyday racism. Mm -hmm. um, and they can, students can do that. There's also other options they can talk about or reflect on privilege or disadvantage. And there are no rules. So mm -hmm. um, I don't say if you're white, you have to talk about this, or if you're a student of color, you have to talk about that. I say whatever, whatever strikes you, you mm -hmm. know, and you can do any combination. Um, and it was always this, this is going to sound so corny, but anyway, I would get these mm -hmm. at the end of the semester and I would sit at my dining room table, a cup of coffee and a box of Kleenex mm -hmm. and I would bawl my eyes out mm -hmm. at what the students had come up with. Yeah. And just so creative, but such a deep, deep reflection, you know, that, mm -hmm. um, I guess shocked me mm -hmm. in some way. Um, and then we had, in 2005, a series of what were called bias incidents. Mm -hmm. And um, 
they largely targeted students of color um, with a lot of like racist... Grand Valley called them bias incidents. Yes. Okay. Um, students of color, particularly African American female RAs, had the N word written on boards outside their gotcha. dorm room, and and um, there were also a lot of um, bias incidents that targeted GLBT kids on mm-hmm. campus. Um, and so one of my classes asked if they could do a collective act of resistance and mm-hmm. they held a rally. Okay. And kind of it was an anti-hate rally and they got speakers and they had donations of, you know, food and drink and mm-hmm. so it was kind of, you know, wow, mm-hmm. what, a, what a great thing that they came up with. Um, but then at some point I met with this fantastic woman um, named Nanette Reynolds. She's not at Grand Valley anymore, mm-hmm. but um, she was kind of our precursor to what's now the the Office of Inclusion okay. and Equity. Um, and I mentioned the act of resistance assignments to her, and I apparently said, and I do not recollect this in any way, shape, or form, um, or no, actually what happened was I told some students, I told two female students that we should act out what was going on in the homework assignments. Mm-hmm. And I just flippantly said it, mm-hmm. you know, like, we should just act these out so I don't have to argue that this still goes on. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they met with, they were both, um, at least one of them was on student senate, and they told Nanette. And so it must have been six months later, Nanette calls me to her office. Mm-hmm. And she said, I want you to try that thing you were talking about with Allison and Annie. <laughs> well, like... I was untenured. I was nervous. Uh-huh. Um, I was relatively young. And uh, so I just played along like I knew what she was talking uh-huh. about. <laughs> and then I got it. back to my office and I called Allison and Annie. And I was like, what the hell is she talking about? Uh-huh. What idea? I don't, I don't remember any of this. Um, and they said, yeah, you know, when you said we should act this out. And I was like, well, you got me into this. You're going to help me. <laughs> so we sat down with a stack of homework assignments mm-hmm. that summer. And we picked out, I think, 12 mm-hmm. that we thought could be dramatized in some way with non-professional actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then using students that I had in class that I thought had a particular understanding of racism in America mm-hmm. and Allison and Annie's contacts as well, we gathered a group of students and pitched this idea and said, this is what we're going to try. Mm-hmm. And so um, the very first kind of thing we did, we called it a day in the life of Grand Valley. Mm-hmm. And it went from waking up in the morning and have room having roommate issues to, um, oh gosh, there was a one called Meet the Parents about interracial dating. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one about getting an MIP at a party. Um, there was one about the way in which establishments, bars and clubs in Grand Rapids were using dress codes mm-hmm. as a proxy for racial discrimination. Um, and so we just kind of, we did, took you from morning until night Mm -hmm. and that was that was our first kind of approach was Um, it an event held at grand valley the first time we did any kind of performance was in one of my social problems courses i believe it was a social problems course and i had a couple of colleagues come in and say i don't know what i'm looking at no theater experience beyond being in a fifth grade play Uh Um, I don't know if this is silly. I don't know if this is impactful. Mm-hmm. I need I need more eyes. And so they came in and watched, and, and they were like, yeah, you've, you've got something for sure. Mm-hmm. How interesting. Yeah. So that was one of my questions, if you had any theater experience. <laughs> I was in a fifth grade play. Perfect. And it was written by my three best friends. <laughs> and uh, my, my play name was Ginny. I and love it. Um, Martians had landed in my backyard, and I was hiding them. So very helpful. Yes. To apply <laughs> to a a play about racism. Yes. I love it. Yes. Um. So you had this thing in your class, and colleagues and other people are saying you have something. So then, are you like, 
woohoo, I'm gonna act on let's do this thing, or are you like, okay, well then I guess I have to keep going because it's something, you know, like, what are your... Um, my... My my really initial reaction was terror. Yes. I was terrified, you know. Um, and again, I had never heard of theater of the oppressed. I had never heard of any of these sorts of traditions. And so I just, you know, didn't really know what I was doing. But I would say that what happened with the students who were part of the group in the room during practice, and we used to practice probably three to six hours a week. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened in that room was amazing. Okay, so it was terrifying. Very terrifying. Is that, I don't know if this is an appropriate question, but I'm just curious about it. As a white person in a specialty of race, is that a common feeling? <laughs> like just being out of your element? I mean, I think it's, Part of that reflects the idea that white people traditionally in America don't see themselves as raced. Yeah. The sociological perspective is clearly, yes, we're raced. Mm-hmm. Every race is a social construction. Um, and I think that in my academic career, there's definitely a privilege that I get, especially in the classroom, mm-hmm. where... Um, I guess the best example for me is um, my PhD advisor was African American, mm-hmm. is African American. Um, and I remember I was a research assistant for him, and it was the end of the semester, and he had a stack of teaching evaluations on his desk. Now, I had had him for um, a graduate course called The Social Psychology of Race, which mm-hmm. was fantastic. I thought he was such a wonderful teacher. Um, and so I saw the the stack of evaluations from the undergrad courses, and I was like, oh, are you so excited to see how well, you know, everyone loved your class? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, and he said, I don't read them. Mm-hmm. And I said, how come? And he says, because I couldn't walk into the classroom if I read them. Mm-hmm. And I still didn't understand what he meant. Um, and he said, go ahead, take them, take them into your office and read them. And it was clearly some of the most racist and, and, and offensive stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought, God, I couldn't read these and walk into a room either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and, and Tim Wise, the anti-racist activist says this as well. I don't say anything unique and I don't say anything that people of color haven't been saying for years and years and centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but whiteness for whatever reason gives me more wiggle room in some ways. Mm-hmm. And that's really unfortunate, you yeah. know, and it, and it does at times create some kind of existential angst, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, want to be listened to because I'm white but because I'm white I am listened to so what do you do with that I mean it's a real it's a it's a real catch-22 quite Mm -hmm. frankly and 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 I'm definitely um and was definitely concerned with the idea that you have a, a white person doing this kind of um we call it anti racist theater um but what I try to do and hopefully do do is draw everyone's attention to the fact that I recognize mm-hmm. that I'm white. I recognize that I'm getting wiggle room. I talk with my classes about that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 am, I make mistakes mm-hmm. and I have to own those mistakes when I make them. Um, and that's very important, I think, part of this process. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's. It's something that's always there in my head. Sure. Right? Yeah. And, and and there are certain things that I don't think I should speak to. Yeah. You know? But I let the students enact on racism make those determinations often. Yeah. And hopefully the theater will speak for mm-hmm. itself. So when there's an event, and maybe this varies, but when there's an event, so you act out these real-life situations of racism is there a discussion afterward, or how does that play out? In 
Yeah, um, we we definitely have different ways of approaching any performance, depending on whether it's a classroom thing, and, and we um, do a skit and then have the class talk to us about what they saw and what they didn't see. Mm-hmm. That sounds strange, but anyway. Um, and then in longer performances, like we have done... Um, Wealthy Street Theater a few times, and and we did the um, opening for the Jim Crow Museum at Ferris State. Um, we stagger uh, spoken word or poetry or different things like that in between the skits, and, mm-hmm. and really has come to be one of my favorite things. Um, but at the end, it's it's question and answer, okay. um, and so um, the students kind of facilitate question and answer. I'm there if they need a sociological perspective, although most of them have at least somewhat of a sociological perspective from doing it. Um, and, and I am a little controlling sometimes with with making sure that the discussion at the end, you know, doesn't, doesn't go to a dark place mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, somebody being really upset or stuck on one particular issue, mm-hmm. um, which we have had happened before mm-hmm. um i think in particular right now but this has been true for a while discussing policing is incredibly difficult yeah and there is no nuance to that discussion right now and mm-hmm. there's no understanding of of different sides yeah um yeah. and i have a hard time with it too quite frankly so yeah people are kind of dug in and it's not yeah i get what you're saying um, can you remember, and there's probably a thousand of these, but like a really um, important moment that you feel like, God, that's the magic of this theater. Um, something that happened that you remember. Um, there's a lot of, of things. I mean, at least for myself, I'm not a big crier per se, <laughs> but I have rarely made it through a performance without at some point being unable to speak. Yeah. You know, because I'm I'm so overcome. Um I was talking with a, a former member actually. He he uh he calls me on Mother's Day, so it's kind of our little joke. I'm his Aww. academic mom. Uh-huh. Um but I was telling him when we did the Jim Crow Museum opening it was right after the murder of Trayvon Martin. And one of my students, Angela, took that particular that particular murder very hard. Like each of my students would, would take for whatever reason, one hits you differently. Yeah. Right. Um, and so we decided to make the theme of our performance remembrance. Mm-hmm. Because it was a museum but also because we wanted to kind of honor her feelings about Trayvon. And so um, I knew I was not going to be helpful in any way, shape, or form mm-hmm. once they started doing that. That was the last part of the performance. So I went behind stage so I could sob quietly mm-hmm. <laughs> without anyone seeing. Um, but all of my students wore hoodies. Uh-huh. And during, throughout the performance, they would come out, one of them would come out and say, I remember, and it could be anyone, I told them each to pick somebody. Mm-hmm. And they would say two or three sentences. And so at the end, all of the students came out, and they had on hoodies, and they froze on stage. And Angela said, I remember Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. and did her piece. And then one of our poets came out, and she did this amazing spoken word piece Mm -hmm. and it's making me tear up just thinking about it and at the end there was hardly anyone who wasn't visibly crying shaken and there was a I believe he's a professor or was a professor at Ferris some african-american man he 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 stood up after we were done and he said thank you for that I just realized I haven't allowed myself time to grieve for Trayvon. Wow. And yeah. so then it was like, oh, yeah. you know, like, I'm, I'm, I gotta Everybody's go backstage again. laid out. Uh-huh. Yep. You know. And so I think that kind of, of reaction is pretty profound. Um, 
We have a, a skit called The Politics of Hair, where we talk about the way in which um, businesses or workplaces will use hair codes as a proxy mm-hmm. um, for discrimination, particularly against African-American women. And um, that one, when we performed it, was was always one that non-college student audience members, African-American women, would say, yep, you nailed it, you got it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and while my students are performing, I'm trying to watch the audience to see what, who gets what or who's responding to what. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to see at different skits, audience members shaking their head or, yeah. you know, kind of seeing a recognition of their own experience, that's always, for me, the important part. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Talk a little bit about if you would theater of the oppressed because I don't I'm not familiar um, and it's probably not a two minute thing but um, what that is what that tradition is a little bit about that well theater of the oppressed um, is really this idea that and, and this is true of sociology it's true of social science in general um, most of what we quote know about the world mm-hmm. actually comes from people from very privileged positions. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, social class privilege, male privilege, race, white privilege. Um, and the idea behind theater of the oppressed is that, and, and pedagogy of the oppressed, um, is that those who live in oppressed categories actually know a lot about the world. They have to, to survive the world. Mm-hmm. And so um, when you look at some older sociology on race, it's incredibly racist. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's written from the perspective of of white, probably upper or at least upper middle class males. Mm -hmm. Um, There was even something called the Davis and Moore theory of social stratification or stratification that argued that stratification was functional for society. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, isn't that convenient if you are not the people sure. on the low end of the stratification system? Yes. For whom stratification is certainly not functional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what the idea is um, in, in Act on Racism is that, A, students know a lot, mm-hmm. a lot more than we give them credit f- for knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, Two, that students of color can really help to illustrate the way in which they experience white supremacy and, and racialized oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they can, they can convey as well the profound emotional impact and psychological impact. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my African-American male students did a poem and he's, he, he did it so hilariously and just in his way. Mm-hmm. Um, he started out with, you know, the audience had to participate. And it started out with, I look good. You know, I'll have to say, I look good. I look real good. I look real good. And you, you kind of do this and then he kind of closes it abruptly and says, okay, that's enough because this is about me and it's not about you. Mm-hmm. And then he goes into mm-hmm. this this poem about how when he was a kid he wanted to be white because he hated his brown skin, mm-hmm. but how he's come to love his brown skin and be proud of who he is. But that's kind of a profound thing to get your head around to think about this kid who I just absolutely adore. Yeah hating himself because of the color of his skin Mm -hmm. like that's that's an incredibly difficult thing Mm -hmm. to kind of think through yeah and of course they're the expert on that like how you know it's just you know they have walked in literally and figuratively in that skin for their whole life and of course going to them would make sense to be the experts on that i love it do you have um a hope, a vision for where you want Act on Racism to go, what you want it to do if you had unlimited resources and time? Um, <laughs> honestly, it, it's become very difficult in the, in the past couple of years to mm-hmm. get members. So we haven't done any performances. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know totally what that's about. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we got to the 10th year, I thought, and this was kind of inspired by some speakers that I had seen, I thought, I need to step away from it and let someone else kind of 
take it and maybe that means the students take it and mm -hmm. I just help them with resources um, and it just kind of died I don't totally again understand why um, so in trying to resurrect it it's been very very difficult mm -hmm. um, so this past year we only had about six to seven kids um, I shouldn't call them kids adults who are students mm -hmm. Um, and we did different things. Mm -hmm. We would watch movies together and then kind of analyze them. What's the meaning? Where's the race? You know, mm -hmm. um, I'd bring them short articles that we'd read together and then kind of talk about. Um, we did go to the Jim Crow Museum one day together and then went out to lunch and talked about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I was amazed that they came back, mm -hmm. given that we weren't doing performances, you know? Mm -hmm. So I always kind of thought, they're coming back for the performances. But then this past year, it's like, no, they're coming back to the room because there's something in that room. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it's going to be like next year, mm -hmm. which is kind of a, a bad and good feeling all mm -hmm. at the same time. I don't have a lot of expectations. I have some, some hopefully new kids coming in. Um, but it's, there's something that happens in that room in terms of the honesty of the discussion, mm -hmm. sometimes the fight, because mm -hmm. we do have those at times, um, sometimes the calling out of each other, mm -hmm. like, uh, did you hear what you just said? Or, um, even to me, they'll call me out and it's like, Ooh, you're right. I did say that, or I did think that way, or I did do that, or I made that assumption. Mm -hmm. That's it's incredibly important that you have spaces to do that. Yeah. Um, but there's something about as well being in that room that maybe leads to really positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I have a former student who's now a professor at Aquinas mm -hmm. and he and I just um, put together a paper on the group. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that we were talking about was that it is astonishing the number of PhD students that have come that were in AOR and who now have PhDs mm -hmm. um, and many of them are doing you know sociology or something related on race um, and that that's an astounding record simply because at the same time most of my students have been um, whether white or students of color, they're first-generation college students. Mm -hmm. So statistically, I sh we shouldn't have that many PhDs coming out of that group. So there's something... The students in AOR are first-generation, or tend yeah. to be first-generation or kids of color. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about being in that group, maybe, yeah. um, that, that, that gives them something that they need. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Um it may sometimes just be the confidence to speak. I mean, our joke has always been that if I find a student that I want to be in the group, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of students are like, well, I, I don't have any acting experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, yeah, 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 you, you can just come to the meetings and hang out. Um, just remind mm -hmm. me that you don't want to perform. And it's probably five minutes into their first meeting that I'm like, okay, could you just pretend to do this right. part? <laughs> Um, and I've only had one student over all those years that that won that battle with me. He he absolutely refused to get on stage, but mm -hmm. he was in every meeting. Um, he contributed to every meeting. His 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 um, insight was was critical. Mm -hmm. um, but he's the only one who won that battle. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I always won. <laughs> I, uh, you know, and so maybe that's it. We don't use. They don't have to use scripts. They have to be able to understand what a skit is trying to communicate mm -hmm. and what are the important points. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's practice is important because they have to know where they're going. Yeah. But no two times will a skit be the same. Mm -hmm. And so maybe part of it is just the straight up public speaking experience mm -hmm. that they get. Um, and the number of students I've had who... I who swear to me that they will never ever be able to speak in public and go on stage. Mm -hmm. And again, I've only had one student who won that battle. So yeah. maybe that's a big part of what it, it, it conveys. Yeah. A sense of their own voice. Yeah. 
And I think, I mean, my bias with this podcast and kind of in life is just that any sort of connection, genuine connection, mm-hmm. um, is soothes what ails us. So if they're being heard and seen in a genuine kind of way, and it may or may not, I don't have any idea, obviously, but may provide just a release valve for all the stress that they carry around all the time as walking through our world as people of color. Yeah, usually um, the first, the very first part of the meeting is venting. Sure. What happened this week? You know, let's talk about it. Yes. And if there's something we can strategize and do about it, let's do it. If mm-hmm. you just need time to talk about it, hey. Mm-hmm. And and we're going to be mad with you. Yeah, yes. You know. And so that's the other really um, amazing thing is the lifelong connection. Mm-hmm. So, you know, students who haven't been in the group for five, six, seven years are still getting together and mm-hmm. hanging out and, you know. Yeah. That's that's amazing to me. Yeah. And really, if that's all it is, I'm that's okay amazing. That. Yes. That's incredible. I mean, if you have students calling you on Mother's Day, something <laughs> happened, right? Yeah. Nobody's calling my husband on Father's Day. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think it's also probably women in academia, good, bad, or otherwise, we we definitely become maternal figures mm-hmm. in some ways mm-hmm. that, that, you know, um, some of us hate it, some of us love it, some of us are midway in between. Yep. I get that. It brings with it all the pluses and minuses of mothering anything. Yes. yes I understand. Totally understand that. Um, all right. So there are a few questions that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So the first one is, and we've talked a little bit about this, but if people, just any people, want to create more genuine connection or community in their lives, either one-on-one or in the larger sense, what is something that you would say, do this, go do this? I think sometimes... Um... And I think I can speak largely to white people on this issue. Mm-hmm. Right? As a white person, it's, it, it, I, I don't think I should tell people of color anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should shut up and listen. Yes, thank you for that. Um, so I think what I would say to, to white people in particular is stop selecting yourself out of certain social situations mm-hmm. or certain experiences because you fear being the minority. Mm-hmm. And think about that for a second. This is what students of color experience every single minute of every day, mm-hmm. right? So this, the, the number of times I've had one student of color in a classroom, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And so they are cognizant of that onlyness, the whole class, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, I think that, that through media, through history, and a very partial telling of history, white people have come to define people of color as scary. Mm-hmm. But they need to understand that white people are just as scary, if not far more so. And so, get over it. Mm-hmm. Go put yourself in, in different places, but don't expect to be the center of that place and don't expect to be rewarded for being there. Just mm-hmm. just be there. Just be there. Mm-hmm. It's really easy. Mm-hmm. And I think over time, you learn a lot from just being in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of, it's the act on racism rule is, is it applies to a lot of different places. Just yeah. be in the room. Yes. Yeah. And I've heard that from, I mean, I've had like, what are your guest number 10? And I've heard that from <laughs> almost everybody. It's just, just do something. And if you do the one thing, it feels maybe easier the next time. Maybe not, but keep doing that little mm-hmm. tiny thing. Just and don't be in the room. it to go perfectly every time either. Right. Sometimes it's going to fail miserably. <laughs> Um, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think, again, as long as you own that. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've definitely had to own my miserable failures, and I've had quite a few. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm still here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yep. You, you get to fail in this world. Yeah. Question number two. Where do you 
personally feel the most seen and heard? Not, or maybe if it, if it's not a place, maybe it's a type of interaction. You know, when you you said you were going to ask that question, it's it's driven me crazy. Uh huh. <laughs> you know, because my initial response was, I don't feel seen or heard. And maybe that's a function of being a woman in academia, where a lot of times I'm like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and again, it's, it's not even intentional, I don't think. It's just that academia is very masculine. That's for sure. Um, but then as it drove me crazy over the past few days, I was like, well, I definitely think my students hear me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't claim that they don't in any way, shape, or form. So I, I live in that academic world where I'm heard and not heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in my personal world, mostly I don't want to be heard. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> I love I, it. I'm, yeah. I'm not the life of the party. I'm not the center of attention. I'm usually the one sitting in the corner being a sociologist watching what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's so interesting how that made you think. Um, and that, yeah, of course, in academia, it's just like Manlyville. Uh-huh. And, and people that um, their intellect has been their their thing. Yes. Their, the thing that they are good at forever. Yes. Um, and so I think feeling, sitting in rooms with professors, with either my husband and his colleagues or as a student, um, and just being a very people person myself, I'm kind of, I'm not necessarily looking for the group dynamics. I'm looking at the individual people and going, yeah, they just, it's the genuine seen and heard as people like you personally, that's not, that's not a strength often yes. of those people. Um, because, because the intellect is what, what comes in the room first. And the which ego, I think is ego super, and the intellect. There you go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oftentimes, yes. Yeah, super interesting. I love it. Um, all right, favorite things. We're going to wrap up on a super light subject. Okay, so what are you I can loving? be super cheesy. I bring it. Bring okay, the cheesy. I love, um, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. I love old cookbooks. You give me an old cookbook and I'm entertained for a long time. Reading the cookbook, cooking from the cookbook, both? All of it. All of it. Um... I think you can learn a lot about history, and I'm mm-hmm. fascinated by history, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, ha- I, I, a few years ago, inherited um, these uh, these little cookbooks that, like, they would put together in the, well, these are all from the 60s. Mm-hmm. One's from the early 70s. An interesting um, culinary time. Well, it's all, <laughs> like, the Society of Women, uh-huh, right? Sure. They would contribute recipes, and then they would sell it. One was... For the Saginaw Art Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, one was for a church, you know. So um, I actually, in looking at these, came up with an activity I do in class where I bring all these old cookbooks in. Mm-hmm. But what fascinated me and what I didn't realize until I just sat down one day is that all of the recipes that were contributed by women, mm-hmm. they say, oh, it's from this person. But the women don't use their first names. So my grandmother, for example, who contributed recipes was Mrs. John A. Stewart. Sure. Yes. And it's not until you hit the early 70s that it turns out these women all had first names. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> yes. So, you know, that kind of fascinates me. And, like, the whole foods that I don't – I have to look up. I don't know what they are anymore. Yes. Um, Cuts of meat that I've never heard of, yeah. or what the heck went on with the fascination with gelatin? Oh, <laughs> the aspect oh, of God, it all. Tomato aspect. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and and I really, my husband and I really love to go to concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, uh, my morning jacket. We went actually for spring break to a my morning jacket little festival thing. All right. Cool. And um, we have people in our lives now that we've met through this band and going to see, you know, events that this band does that Mm -hmm. it's really cool and really precious. And they have nothing to do with academia. Perfect. So it's, it's, 
Hi, Smith sisters. Um, so it's kind of opened up a world um, where I don't have to be all that smart. And I'm not saying that people that we meet aren't smart. Yeah. They're they're very smart. They're very interesting. But I don't have to be the professor. Yeah. I guess is the deal. And, yeah. And in some ways, that's really relaxing for me. Yes. It's your release valve. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to constantly prove that you know things about a lot of things and then my final most recent and highly embarrassing big obsession and you'll laugh in a second um so for whatever reason i got drawn into the story of fiona the hippo are you familiar Fiona the hippo no so fiona um was a hippo born at the cincinnati zoo okay very prematurely okay she was only 29 pounds. And like recently? Last, not this past February, but she's just over, she's over a year. Okay. Um, and uh, she was fortunately born on land. Hippos usually give birth in water. And okay. for whatever reason, her mother, Bibi, yes, I know, parents, <laughs> um, gave birth in her pen. And so they were, the some of the zookeepers were watching on closed circuit TV mm-hmm. at their homes. And they were like, oh my God, she's not supposed to be giving birth. And... <sighs> They ran in, and within a half an hour or something like that, they had to decide to take the hippo from her mother because she was not able to stand and Mm -hmm. therefore wasn't going to be able to nurse. And it became this thing that was, like, there were daily updates on Facebook, and, like, at one point she was going to die, and then people from the Cincinnati Children's Hospital came in and, like, figured out how to give her an IV. And, I mean, it was just, like... I was on the edge of my, like, every day, how was Fiona? You were all in. So I got to go last summer before she was even regularly on display just by chance. I was at Um. my Morning Jacket concert with my wonderful friends. Uh And on the way back up, my husband and I stopped and, and weren't, again, she wasn't on display when we got there. But I overheard a security guard say that she would come out. Mm Mm-hmm. If she was going to come out, she would come out around 4 o'clock when her father, Henry, takes a nap. Mm -hmm. Side note, hippos have scheduled nap times. How do I get this job? Amazing. So um, I was like, (laughs) we are going to have to stay. And so we walked around and ate and did stuff like that and came out. And I waited for half an hour and I thought, yeah, she's, she's not coming. And she came out. And I cried hysterically in oh. front of all these toddlers, like, and almost, you know, was like to the three-year-old, get out of my way. You're not going to remember this. And no. for whatever reason, I need this. Yes. This means nothing to you. Yes. I have been with Fiona on yes. her whole journey. Yes. Move aside. So, Absolutely. Uh, I got to meet Fiona um, as much as one gets to meet a hippo at a zoo. And uh, oh. that's why my puppy... It's named Fiona. That was going to be my next question. Yes, we talked about our crazy rescue dogs before we started recording, and you have a lovely new dog, new-ish dog named Fiona. Mm-hmm. That's so cute. Yes, that's why she's Fiona. I love it. Is she gray like a hippo? No, she's okay. um, she's jet black, but she's got a white blaze down the front, and then she's got a couple of white toes. She's cute in her own right. She's she's absolutely adorable. Yes. She looks nothing like a hippo, but that's okay. It's fine. It's totally fine. I love it. Those are like my favorite, favorite things I've heard. <laughs> I freaking love it. And when we stop recording, I have a crazy cookbook that I might just hand over to you that I keep saying to my neighbors that we're going to like just blindly pick a page uh-huh. and then we all have to bring the thing that is on that page because it's just the most disgusting. Really? And 60s cuisine-y I, aspect the 60s for days. look so interesting so, from the perspective of cookbooks. I mean, what really was going on? I, so <laughs> weird. It's also fascinating to me to revisit the name thing that like even in like the home cooking space, mm-hmm. women didn't, own their first name. I mean, that's so bonkers. I have one from 1947. I cannot remember the name of, of the book or the author. It's one I picked up randomly in an antique store just for my class. But there, one of my students found a whole paragraph mm-hmm. um, on this the, the author, the woman author, saying she included temperatures 
so you knew when meat was done. Mm -hmm. And that her editors had said, quote, the average housewife is too stupid to understand what that means. And her response was, if you're cooking without a thermometer and not killing people, you're obviously of higher (laughs) intelligence. And um, I'm pretty sure that women can read numbers on a thermometer. And I thought, isn't that fascinating? Wow. In 1947, after women had gone into the war effort and worked Mm -hmm. in factories and did resource drives and taught each other how to can and preserve food and victory garden, they were Mm -hmm. too stupid to read a thermometer. Mm -hmm. That is fascinating. Oh, my golly. Mm -hmm. Well, I loved this. Every minute of it. It was fun. um, I'm so glad that people will get to hear about this act on racism and from you and the whole thing because I think it's this that like this little jewel that has been happening for many years that has probably had ripple effects that you just have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I love it, love every minute of it. So thank you for well, being thanks for having me. It was fun. <laughs> experience of being a woman in academia so fascinating both when she spoke of fulfilling a mothering role at times which I completely understand and when she spoke in a vulnerable way about not being truly seen in that academic space it just reminds me yet again that we are more than our roles more than our jobs more than our accomplishments more than our best work we are all way more complex than that and what a gift it is to see the complexity and nuance rather than to put everyone in a simplistic box. I freaking loved her favorite things. Wasn't that the best? Those cookbooks and the baby hippo and the dog. I mean give me a cute animal with an Instagram feed and I am all in. I'm here for it. I think I linked to this Instagram feed called Ludwig the guinea pig. I think it's Ludwig the guinea pig. I'll have to put the link in again. I think I put the link in one of my early episode show notes and I follow him on Instagram obviously and you should too. You're thinking hairless guinea pig. Sounds horrifying but you're absolutely wrong. You're just wrong. Follow him and the hippo and Jennifer's dog and you'll be living your best life. Double promise you. I am not a cute pet, but I'd love for you to follow me on the socials as well. You can find me on Facebook at Taking the Middle Seat and on Instagram at Andrea Beck Lunsko, no hyphen. I am not nearly cool enough for Snapchat and I just can't with Twitter. I just cannot. So Facebook and Instagram is all you get. If you love these interviews, share them with the people. Tell them how to find the podcast and show them how to listen. They don't know. So you just have to assume they don't know and show them. Just teach them. Teach the people. They'll think you're super smart and hip with your podcast knowledge. So just do it. Everybody wins. Everybody wins with the podcast. So guys, remember my assignment at the beginning. Go ahead and tell your people that you love them. They need to hear it. So spread that love. I will be back soon with another episode of Taking the Middle Seat.